0: Hi, this is LGBTQ&A, where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Michelle T. Michelle is the author of many books, including Valencia, Rent Girl, Rose of No Man's Land, and most recently, Black Wave. Stay tuned. Michelle. Hi. Hi. Welcome to our show. <laughs> Thank you. Absolutely. Um, I really enjoyed Black Wave.
1: Oh, I'm so glad.
0: Yeah, it felt mystical.
1: Oh, well, yeah, there is, there's that in it for sure.
0: Yeah, it, I think just because it's like the memoir fiction blend, is that how we're describing it? I no? Mean, I, no, that's Was a great way. that just way. marketing? <laughs> no, no,
1: no, it is memoir fiction blend. And there's so many different terms to describe that. People are calling it speculative memoir, autofiction, fiction. Um, I've been calling it like a hybrid or a mashup but okay. there's no like solid established genre for okay. that type of book so and I think, call it whatever you like thank you okay <laughs> I
0: will <laughs> I think just because the main character was named Michelle and it's like mirrors some of your life but not all of mm-hmm. um, it it kind of kept you like off kilter in a good way oh, like in an that. intriguing way that's great I mean yeah. the main
1: character is me yeah Um, but I'm just writing about me more as a character yeah so Pulling from true events, and then also, with a lot of those true events, scrambling them a little bit so that they're not completely true. Then outright creating, you know, entire apocalyptic fiction that clearly has never happened. So you can't really trust that anything in the book is true, though there is lots in the book that's true. And there's a lot in the book that's emotionally true.
0: Yeah, was there any part of you that was, like, afraid, like... Karmically to like predict anything like you need drama like saying like killing off like a family member and then mm-hmm. like willing that into existence. I wish I was that powerful. <laughs> I truly wish. you have written about spells. <laughs> uh-huh.
1: Yes, yes. I do. I do believe in spells. Um, I guess a book can be a type of spell, but I certainly don't think that. No, I don't. I don't think of that. I wasn't wishing any any harm okay. to come to anything. Um, you know, I guess. I mean, if you just think about that fiction's created every you know how many chunks of fiction there are of course I wish I wish our books could actually impact the world a little stronger not in that particular way but I was thinking more in
0: terms of your life just because it was Michelle it is Uh you it
1: is me yeah um I don't kill off I guess I kind of kill off some people but they're fictional people
0: yeah
1: um Michelle's family in the book is a fictional family. Like I, She I, has
0: two moms in the book. She has two moms in the book. Yeah. I
1: don't have two moms in real life. She has a gay brother in the book. I don't have a gay brother in real life. What so. a queer family. Yeah, <laughs> Michelle, totally queer family, completely unlike my own. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it was... As somebody who's written a lot of memoir, and that is my first sort of impulse as a writer, is to yeah. write memoir, it was really fun to still use very overtly like me, or this idea of myself, um, and really reckon with the fact that I have, in effect, through writing so much memoir, created a character out of myself, you know? And so to really look at that and then really play with her as a character was really fun.
0: That's fun. Yeah. I hated reading it, what a novelty it is today to still read about queer characters.
1: Well, I mean, the book takes place in 1999. So every place, everything that we were at, everywhere we were at culturally in the book is sort of mirroring my experience of of where we were at culturally in 1999. It maybe it's gotten a little better. I don't know though. I don't know that it's gotten better. I can't tell.
0: I think it's like inching that way. But um, I mean, I read so many books with queer and trans characters and um, written by these people. Yeah. But I like intentionally seek them out.
1: I know. That's why it gets confusing. It's like, well, my world is filled with these books, but I yeah. don't understand how much they're getting out into the larger world. Yeah, um, I, don't I was know. just sent, um, my agent sent me a new a novel, a debut novel that's coming out called The Animators and i feel terrible that i can't remember the author's name um <laughs> but i didn't know that i'd be talking about it but it is a novel and the, one of the main characters just happens to be this sort of like super tough cool dyke and it was just was so lovely just to be reading this piece of literary fiction that that i don't believe is going to have much to do with the fact that she is queer but she's just queer and the book is going to be about all this other stuff oh, and I that's love that. what i like to see you know i mean not that there isn't still things to be said about the condition of being queer you know in america or anywhere but it's also really nice to not have to have all of our writing be about that yeah you know like speaking to that not the defining characteristic yeah yeah
0: you've revealed so much in your books i'm assuming though there's things that you like have kept for yourself is that true no (laughs) are you serious
1: i mean probably not i think i've i mean i i don't have for whatever reason i don't really have a big problem um Writing about my experiences and perspectives, and yeah, like five books worth of it. I know, right? (laughs) It's like, all right, already. Um, but yeah, I don't. There, I I don't feel like compromised by that in any way. So I don't feel a need to like keep something in for some reason. Like it doesn't. I don't feel affected by it in some way. Do you think that that you have more
0: stories than most people? It's possible that I have more
1: stories than some
0: people because yeah.
1: of the life that I've lived. I've lived. I think when you live a life outside of the margins, you see a lot more. You live like two lives because you're you see the life. You understand what the the normal life is. You see that because you know that you're not that. Yeah. And then you know what you are. So you have a wider view of the culture because you you know what everybody knows, which is the mainstream, but you also know the underground and not everybody knows that. And right. of course there's a million undergrounds and there's a million margins to be on. But as somebody who grew up, you know, poor working class, who's queer, who's female, a feminist, who's worked in the sex industry, who's a writer, all of these things have their own little subcultures to them. So in that way, you know, I guess I've lived a little more than some people. Yeah. But I also think that everyone's life is sort of fascinating if you really look at it through the proper angle. And I think that anybody with the same compulsion that I have
0: (laughs) could could take
1: their own life, you know, and and write a bunch of books about it, even if, you know, they weren't a goth teenager getting chased by the cops for drinking wine in the park or, you know, a queer sex worker, you know, trying to do calls with her young girlfriend or whatever, you know, whatever I've written about there's there's other stories.
0: Of course. I know that, I think that, I was trying to think of why I knew of you and your work. Mm-hmm. And I think I discovered you from the quote from Valencia about you'll find me in like the dirtiest bar. You can uh, find plates of calcium and protein. <laughs> in, and, um, is that, would you think that's like maybe like a famous quote of yours?
1: Jeez, I don't know if it's famous. Oh, really? um, I mean, that makes me feel so happy <laughs> to think that it might be because it's the last chapter of Valencia. And I wrote that chapter as a sort of ode to my friend, um, Milena Poor, who's a writer. Oh, She's right. a wonderful writer, and she lives in the South. And um, we were friends when she lived in San Francisco, and we were both young, and we both had our heart broken by the same girl. And at first, I didn't want to be her friend because she was like the ex, you know? And then once I got dumped, I especially yeah. really... We had this thing in common. that felt so important at the time. But really, what we have in common is we have a similar spirit. We're both writers and kind of weird, witchy females. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was kind of an ode to her when she left San Francisco she took off to the south to go have babies and stuff. Oh. And
0: so that's why. Oh, the quote just stood out to me. These also like running about of um, excellent danger. <laughs> like, I love that. Like, I want to get that tattooed. Maybe if oh. this goes well, we'll get them together. Okay. Excellent danger. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, you, more than other writers, I think have like a way of crafting sentences and like putting words together that makes it like exciting to read but also memorable.
1: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you. I, mean, yeah. I think that's what all writers strive to do. And you just hope that. You're doing it, and sometimes you are and sometimes you're not. Do you recognize it though, when you like write a great sentence? Sometimes I do. okay. sometimes I do. Um, I can get lost in my writing and really enjoy the process of writing. And um, what happens is because I enjoyed it so much. when I'm d- when I'm done and I step away, sometimes I mistakenly think it's amazing because I feel amazing. Oh. So I'll kind of come away from writing and be like, that was great. I'm great. And then later I'm like, oh, it's fine, you know, but I was clearly like having a moment of creativity where I was enjoying myself. My yeah. coffee balance was correct, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, and sometimes it's not as good as I thought.
0: But, oh, I got gotcha. you. You
1: know, but yeah, I mean, definitely, I really enjoy what I do and have fun. And so there's a lot of times where I'll. Something will come out and I'll be like, yeah, I think that's good. Yeah, totally. I felt like that a lot writing Black Wave. I had a really good feeling about the book the whole way through, which oh, was okay. really nice. Yeah,
0: yeah, I love that. And then to another line that stood out to me, uh, I think it was from How to Grow Up. Um, I wrote it down. Oh, it was about being drunk uh-huh. and how the whole world feels severe and profound, teeming with wonder and pain. That's so extreme. Yeah. Like that feeling in like the best way. Now that you are sober, like where do you find that feeling in your life? God,
1: well, I don't know at this point in my life if I need the world to feel that intensely teeming (laughs) with wonder and pain. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that there's something about being young in your 20s and drunk and feeling invincible and feeling immortal that you feel like you can face down all of the terror and wonder of the world and somehow you're just going to own it and come out on top and be like the goddess of it all. And I just don't necessarily feel like that anymore. I'm a mom. I have a two-year-old. Like, there's a lot of wonder... In having him in my life, I mean yeah. that is absolutely the biggest source of wonder that I've ever had, ever. Like all the cheesy cliche stuff people say like about you're, you're babies. Here to confirm it. Yeah, I'm here to confirm it. Unfortunately, it's 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 amazing. He's amazing. So oh. so there's that, and and also there's there's no there's no shortage of pain to be witnessed in the world, and I don't um, necessarily have at this point a more a romantic. View of it. I think at the time when I was younger, um, I was processing a lot of my own pain and trauma. And I think that sort of finding a sort of um, oddly romantic um, path through it felt good and right.
0: Yeah.
1: But it, having, I hope, kind of come through most of that, I don't have that relationship to it. And I just see things like, you know, everything that's happening in our culture right now you know, with Black Lives Matter and, and so many black men just being murdered by cops. And it's just like, it just kills me. And, and I don't feel like, I don't know. It just makes me feel like I want to do more than I'm able to do when Yeah, I see it, you know?
0: I, th- I think that that's so apparent in your work, though. Um, Just like the tension between stability and art, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I want to pay rent, but I also want to go to Paris. And yeah. I want to, like, sit in this coffee shop and write.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think as an artist, you always have to... Put your art first, even if it makes making a lot of sacrifices, because nobody else will do that for you. And if you're truly an artist and that is truly the life that you want, it is the only way for it to happen.
0: I would, I I agree with that, but I would push back and say that I think that you created, this is, tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think that you created possibly more like extreme suffering for your art than other people.
1: You think so? Like
0: based on your like housing situations and...
1: (laughs) But you have to understand like my housing situations were like, I was so broke that what was actually affordable to me was always, it wasn't like I could move into a nicer place. It was like yeah. I'd find a punk house for $200 a month and that was great because then I could write and I didn't have to get a job, yeah. you know? And I was like a you know 20-something-year-old who just wanted to party, so it yeah. was really perfect. And then the suffering that comes out of that just sort of didn't even register as suffering in that t- at that time. It was more just kind of... Was kind of went into the stew of everything, of like highs and lows, and living an exciting life and a passionate life, and you know, a life like without a safety net, and yeah. yeah. So oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it wasn't like, um, I mean, it's the thing about like the places I've been and the things that I've experienced is that certainly I was making choices for sure, but also my palette of choices were possibly different than a lot of other people's palette of choices. Okay. You know. Like what was available to me wasn't necessarily available to everyone. Sure. You know, or I had less that was available to others.
0: Yeah. To choose from. Did that sound rude? No, it, it okay. didn't sound rude. Okay. Not at
1: all. It really, it really didn't. Um, I just I'm wonder just if that's like my like out.
0: white privilege, like projecting onto it or something. It
1: could be. I mean, it really could be that because a lot of um, it's just like a lot of you know I had a, I had a producer that I was working with at one point um to try to make um, Rent Girl, which is this illustrated novel I did about um being in the sex industry, we were trying to make it into a TV show for a moment. And at one point, he had talked about how sad he thought the book was. And I just thought, wow, like I don't think any of it is sad, even the sad moments. I mean, we all have sad moments in our life and that doesn't mean we chalk up anyone's life to, that was a sad life. You know what I mean? It's like sad things happen, great things happen. But I thought it was interesting that that's what he brought. And so I feel like that sometimes happens with my writing because I am writing about more extreme Scenarios and experiences that a lot of people haven't experienced firsthand, and maybe from the outside it does look kind of scary. Or like people are like, "I don't want that experience," which I understand. I don't either anymore. Want most of, of them, of course. But to, to looking at them, being like, "Oh wow, why did they do that?" But the the thing is, is that at that in that time and place, there appeared no other option. Right. And any suffering that came out of it didn't necessarily strike me as suffering as much as it just did, like. Life, man. Day, like yeah. day to
0: day. Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, that that tracks so well. Like in specifically in how to grow up, but yeah. your other work that you're tracking your descent into adulthood based on the type of apartment you can afford and what you pay for rent. Sure, and I that's like part relate of it. so much. To that. Yeah, that's a <laughs> yeah.
1: part of it makes you. I mean, the whole idea of adulthood—it's like this concept, right—that is totally not even true, or some of it's true, or. You know, it's like everyone's kind of working their way with it, yeah. figuring it out. But definitely, like, I know what things for me personally made me feel, like, frustrated. Like, I wanted to achieve a different level of feeling like an adult in the world, which I guess to me feels like having a little bit more power, a little bit more resources, a little bit more respect, you know, um, yeah. and even self-respect. So, right. you know, so some of that.
0: It's Yeah, it's also, like, very often in my case you're looking back on your life and you're like oh how did I like survive that yeah but in the moment you're like oh this is hard but like this is life
1: totally and thank god because if we crumbled every time something hard hit us we'd just be like a mess like stunted like 10 years back. But no, of course not. We just kind of keep going. And and a lot of times it's not until you're through it that you can look back and be like, I kind of knew that was a hard time. But like now I just kind of can't even imagine. Right. You know, like at one point I remember like I knew I was really broke in the 90s and I I didn't pay taxes for like ever um, like Donald Trump. And <laughs> but for very different reasons. <laughs> I like just like I don't know. I, I owed money one year and I just literally didn't have the hundred dollars that I owed. And I just got panicked and decided to just not deal with it anymore and then once I got sober it was one of the things that I had to do was just have this reckoning and, and it wasn't that scary because I had been so broke and then to be like 10 years out and in a and having had achieved like a, a better sort of economic stability for myself finding all of my old receipts that I'd saved and calculating what I made I was like wow I made ten thousand dollars that year Like, that was really intense. Like, when I was in it, I wasn't thinking, oh, no, I'm only making $10,000 this year. How will I live? I always had money for pasta and (laughs) beer and (laughs) cocaine, you know, and thrift store clothes or finding clothes on the street or getting free into the clubs that I wanted to get into. You know, it's like I was happy. I was writing, and I had enough to do what the things that I wanted to do. I guess what gets... Scary is when the things you want to do change, and you yeah. find trap. You find that you are trapped in your circumstances. That's when things get hard.
0: Yeah, and like looking back at all that, is it weird looking at your life now, like married with a child, sober? <laughs>
1: No, it's not weird. Really? Yeah, no, it feels like, I mean, maybe if it had happened like poof overnight when I was 25, I would have been like, what the hell happened in my life? Where'd this baby come from? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is my skin nicer? Um, but, you know, everything's gradual and, you know, and, and, and everything's a result of choices that I consciously made, you know. Yeah. So so none of it feels weird. It feels great. I feel really lucky, you know, to have survived and, and figured out. And and gotten the resources to kind of help create create
0: the life that I want. Yeah, yeah. It was like a, such a big moment too in your last book when you finally met Dashel. 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 Yeah. Dashel, and you're like, oh my god, she met somebody that she likes. To, she likes <laughs> her, and she's good. Oh, good. I'm glad. <laughs> like a stable relationship. What does I, this look like? Yeah,
1: totally. What does it look like? It right? takes an
0: adjustment for you to be like, oh, this isn't that painful.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it was that too was a process. Like I had sort of. um I mean, I think it's weird when you're drawn for whatever reason to people who aren't necessarily good for you. It is a process of recognizing that and pulling yourself out and reorienting your attraction. It doesn't happen overnight. I mean, I definitely had moments where I was like, this is a person that looks like I should go out with, so I'm going to try it out. And then it doesn't really work, but you learn something in those relationships. So I had a lot of like relationships that, you know, didn't last, but that I kind of got something out of and they were steps. For me to kind of heal my sort of damaged attraction picker, you know, my yeah. broken picker. And so by the time Dashiell came in, I think I'd done enough work that... I could really just recognize her as just an amazing emotional superstar, like massive relationship material. Yeah. Whereas earlier, who knows? I would have been like, she's cute, but she's a little too clean, or like something like that, you know? Like that probably would have been how I felt about it. She has perfect hair. Can't do it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I don't don't know. She's a Virgo. They're really particular, you know? So, So yeah.
0: Oh, fascinating. Just. You you guys now live in LA. Yes, we do. Well, I, um, I I said that because like you're such the quintessential like queer SF writer. <laughs> so when I found out you lived here, I was like, oh my god, like an end of an error. And sure. while it wasn't my life, I like felt something. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow. Well, I mean, San Francisco's always been such a beacon for people, even who don't live there. I mean, the people who would, so many people would come there for their vacations for their gaycations for Pride yeah. I mean even if you didn't live there you still kind of knew I think that like something was happening there and you were still a part of it even if you weren't there just mm-hmm. by virtue of being queer you know but um, it's true I mean the 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 world that I was a part of just isn't there anymore and so it just didn't feel as fun to yeah. be there you know I mean I definitely there's definitely still amazing artists that have found a way to stick it out there and I have friends there that I, I miss but um, overall I feel like the queer scene and the art scene in Los Angeles is so much more vibrant wow. than it is in San Francisco.
0: When you lived in SF early on, was it very easy just to, like, to find those queer friends? Oh,
1: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it was like really a little wonderland, you know? Like, when I got to town, I only knew one person, and then I found that uh, somebody I'd I'd briefly tried to go to college for like a semester and I was involved with the queer group on campus, and somebody from there had also moved to San Francisco, and she'd been there, and she said here's where you go, go to Red Doors Bearded Lady for coffee, go, you know, to the women's bookstore for your books, go to, um, you know, Junk at the Stud is the big queer party that everybody goes to. And it was true. It was like ready-made, amazing community. It was this beautiful moment where a lot of people were moving to town. Um, Queer women, I mean, kind of because of what had happened. The city had been so decimated so recently by the AIDS crisis that there was like, I think that what happened is that there was all of this space for queer women to sort of come in and rise up. And it was really a queer dominated, queer female dominated scene in that moment, which was really unusual. I mean, it was a mixed scene. There were lots of like queer punk fags and queer punk dykes. And, yeah, it was just kind of crazy. It was it was wild. It was I a really that. it was a really amazing time, you
0: know. Yeah. Yeah. And I um Going off that, I love that the New York Times Review of Black Wave mentioned, like, the work you've done documenting our stories. Not just in your work, but editing anthologies and then the performance series and, like, the literary tours. Mm -hmm. Like, how did that start? It
1: started um, simply because there was no place for me and my friends to perform. That's really all that happened. Um, I was going – when I moved to San Francisco, uh, spoken word was really popular. There were open mic nights every night of the week. You could just go to them seven nights a week at different bars and cafes. And they were really fun, but they were really dominated by straight guys. And a lot of those guys thought they were Charles Bukowski, and they weren't. And Not even gay men? No, no very few gay men. Huh. Very few gay men. Um, Justin Chin, who is an incredible poet who we lost last year, was part of that scene. Um, Trevor Healy, who's a queer writer who I'm reading with in San Francisco at Stories on October 19th, actually. Um, he was there. And um, it's probably terrible that I'm forgetting some people, but it just illuminates how little queer men were coming into these particular spaces. Interesting. And queer women. There were very few queer women in the space. And the people who were queer sort of bonded together. And we became our own little community with, like, you know, Beth Lissick, who might as well be queer, and Justin and Marcy Blackman and Cindy Anderson. And, um and I was like, well, there." I found out that Cindy Anderson, uh, she's now primarily a filmmaker. She made the Kathleen Hanna documentary, The Punk Singer, which is amazing. She had wanted to do an all-girl open mic. And I was like, people referred her to me because they knew I was involved in the open mics. And yeah. then we were like, let's just do it together. And it was perfect because San Francisco was thriving with artists. It was filled with queer females. And they weren't showing up at these events. So we're like, well, maybe they just... Who wants to... Why should you have to like go and brave all these drunk dudes to show your queer kind of vulnerable female art? So we created this space and it was like flooded immediately. Like called it Sister Spit. There was a... Like a the sign-up list was like hugely long. We couldn't even get to everybody the first night we did it. And we did it every week for two years, which is a lot. Yeah. Nowadays, open mic nights are monthly usually. They're not weekly. But we did it weekly and um, it was amazing. And, and somewhere in there... I was in a punk band. We went on a tour. Um, we were terrible. The tour was terrible. But I loved it. I loved being on the road. And um, I thought, if if my bad band can do this, why can't all the poets? I know they're so smart. And so we created Sister Spitz Ramblin' Roadshow, where without the internet, without credit cards, <laughs> without cell phones, we somehow booked a 31-day tour across the United States. We took two van loads of queer, female-identified at the time, um, performers and writers, and we did shows every night of the week. And um, that's we huge. had no grants. We had no, uh, as I said, I was making $10,000 a year. We had no credit cards, no cell phones. It was cr- really crazy when that's one of the things I look back on now. And it's like incredible that we did it. But again, like there was no other way for it to happen. But that way. So
0: So we did it. So you get to different cities. How do the queer women there know that this is happening?
1: Um, We did a lot of... We made press releases and sent them out via snail mail. You know, we stole tons of copies from Kinko's because you could still steal copies from Kinko's at that point. We also did one to two fundraisers a month for a year to fund all of it. So the community really funded it. And... um, We would just, yeah, we'd send them out. We'd do the research. The internet had just kind of happened. It was like 1996. So there was the internet, but it wasn't what it was. It is today, you know? So we were able to do some research and find out, like, what are the weekly papers in these towns. Also, a time before the weekly papers all became bought up by the conglomerate, they were all very truly independent papers with connections to those scenes in those towns. We would also look for the gay paper and we'd send it. And, you know, people are looking for. Articles and we're like we're a bunch of badass queer feet, you know, queer dykes coming to town to read spoken word and from San Francisco and I think San Francisco did have that allure at that time. Oh, San Francisco dykes are coming to read us, you know, poetry. Wow! So we got attention and and pretty much everywhere we went, a crowd showed up. And that
0: um, must have been startling to see it was for startling. the town people.
1: I mean. I think that people were really hungry for it. It was just a zeitgeist moment. Like, there's no other way to to understand it. I mean, spoken word was really... Sort of um, taking off is it was very popular in that moment, not only in San Francisco but elsewhere, college towns and big cities across the United States were having like slam poetry moments. And soon after, the poetry slam would actually begin, I think, or maybe it maybe it had okay. already, maybe it had already started because we were using some poetry slam contacts to book our shows. Wow! And you know, everyone I knew in San Francisco, no one was from there. Everyone was from other places, so we could say, Hey, where would this show happen in Chicago? Where oh. would this show happen in Atlanta? Where would we do this show in Minneapolis? You know? And we'd find out we'd get referrals.
0: Huge.
1: Yeah. And we use the the Damron Traveler, which is the, the it's like this kind of cheesy, like gay and lesbian it's not even lesbian. It's like this gay male travel book that existed before the internet when you needed to know like where are gay friendly places, hotels I can stay, yeah, places to go, clubs to go. Um it was very much a pre-internet phenomenon. There was always like a white shirtless man sitting by the pool, like on the cover. And we would look at those and go through it. We had a friend who worked there. She'd give give them to us. And we'd be like, where is there a show that does drag? Because if a bar, I mean, sorry, where is there a bar that does drag? Because if they do drag, they have a PA, they have a stage, and we can bring our show there. Wow. So that was a way, too, that we sometimes found places to perform. Wow. Yeah. Wow.
0: I wonder if people are less inclined to, like, go out and find a queer community now just because the internet exists.
1: I mean, I don't know if they're less inclined. I think people need real-life Contact and real life community, you know. I mean, I think that that's probably scary for some people, and those people probably do really enjoy keeping
0: it on the computer, and they probably need it more than others to like to be in person. Yeah. Like those people that I feel mean, safe. Maybe,
1: yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, exactly. Like, a lot of queers don't feel safe in public, yeah, you know, in the world, and so it's awesome that the that the the computer does actually offer you some community in that way. But I don't think it's for me. It's like not the same like I love I had a book party for black wave last night and I couldn't believe all the different people that came from different parts of my life and it was felt so wonderful to be be there I love that yeah
0: well and when you were dating men was your queerness ever questioned by people
1: um not really um not really it you know most of the men that I dated were trans men and so they were part of the queer community so that it wasn't questioned in that way Um, it was sort of funny to me, I guess, when I would date cisgendered men and people would be would think that was kind of weird. And I'm just like, but I'm dating trans men. You understand that they're men. Like, these are right. all just men, you know? It's like, I think that, you know, while they're off... I mean, trans men... The trans men I dated because they were an active part of queer community, we had queer community in common. So that was really great. And I didn't have queer community in common with the cisgendered men. Yeah. I was dating, which actually became a barrier between us really getting to... Date more seriously, um, but but yeah, um, there's there's often not a, a, the differences between cisgender men and trans men are overstated in our culture. Oh, yeah. it, there's not that it's there's really no difference, you know. Really, the, the biggest difference is being able to share that common queer community. But that's not always the case. There's lots of trans men that they're not part of queer community, you yeah. know, And so I would probably have the same issues dating them that I did dating the the cisgender dudes that I dated that I didn't agree. get it. Yeah. yeah, I just
0: wonder if there was, like, a stigma there.
1: I mean, some people probably felt weird about it, but the people I surround myself with are kind of past thinking about things like that, you know?
0: That's very nice. It's great. That's, like, ideal. I
1: mean, I couldn't have friends that thought it was weird because then I'd be like, really? Because I, now I think you're weird. <laughs> like, our <laughs> friendships wouldn't work, you know? I feel yeah. I feel very much like... I mean, my takeaway from being part of a queer community in, from the 90s is that I can date whoever I want to date, do you know what I mean? It was kind of my early young baby dyke rallying crying, yeah. and that stuck with me. And if I now want to date somebody who is not queer or who is cisgendered dude, then I feel like...
0: Yeah. People or, like, person or people, like, expanding, like, open relationships and non-monogamy. And, like, did your view on monogamy change?
1: No. I mean, I played around with non-monogamy like everyone did in their 20s, and in a lot of ways, it, it's always appealed to me. But the reality of it versus it as a concept, you know, is like the reality of it is that I don't necessarily have the space for the drama and the processing and everything that goes with it. And it's like, I don't want to be managing jealousy all the time. I don't want to be provoking jealousy in somebody that I love. Like at the end of the day, for me, it's just like not not worth the trouble. A lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know. So and I'm very I think I'm even though like intellectually, I can really appreciate it. Um, and I've certainly had slutty periods in my life where it worked out for me. In general, I'm, I think I'm wired to be more monogamous. Like, when I really fall in love with somebody, like, I don't really want Huge. anything else.
0: Yeah. All right, interesting. Yeah. Um, You've mentioned witchcraft. <laughs> I have to ask you. Just yeah. because your books, you've mentioned Buddhism. You've mentioned pray, um, praying to Stevie Nicks. Uh-huh. You've mentioned spells. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I also read that you've, like, a... A modern tarot card book coming out. I
1: do have a tarot book coming out in June, yeah.
0: Can you like talk about, like, do you consider it like religious beliefs, like magical beliefs? Like, what is, what do you consider? I this? wouldn't
1: consider it religious beliefs. I guess it is spiritual or, um, or like a magical philosophy or something. I mean, I guess if I had to really, um, break it down, I think that there are energies that are larger than us in the world most of us can agree with that right like yeah. we don't know what's out there i really enjoy that mystery and the potential magic of it i like trying to tune into it i think that um there's something in our who knows if it's in our brains or if it's in our whatever else we might have our our psyches our souls there's something in humans that make us drawn to want to worship something lar- or, or connect with something larger than ourselves and you know I can understand the intellectual argument to kind of tear that down. But for me, it's much more fun to indulge it, you know, and to indulge it in ways that work for me intellectually, which is, like, I'm not going to go and worship some, like, weird dude god that I was raised on in the Catholic schools that I went to. You know, right. I'm going to be like, well, who would I like to make an offering towards? You know, Stevie Nicks. Like, who, who, can, I, who can I believe really has my best interest at heart? Like, who is a... What's a deity... That is not a punishing deity and that's not spying on me all the time and you know <laughs> that, that respects my privacy you know but um so I, I really enjoy that Um I do believe in intuition and in psychic abilities and whatnot, and I think that you know having some of that and seeing it in other people who have it a lot more is definitely to me acts as a, somewhat of a confirmation that there is more going on to our lives than we're able to
0: recognize. Do you have these like psychic tendencies
1: I have the like dumbest psychic tendencies like I will get a psychic impulse about something that is the least important thing in the world like one day I was like on my way to work and I'd been having an affair with the girl at my work and I was like she's gonna start brushing her teeth at work just came to me like a psychic flash like we'd never talked about her teeth or anything like and then that day she's like I'm going to lunch I'm gonna stop by Walgreens and get a toothbrush I was like I know I know you are you know, another time I was going to have a coffee with a new friend. It was the first time we ever hung out. I knew very little about him, except he was really a, a nice kind of bubbly, smart-seeming um, gay boy. And as I was walking down the stairs, I was like, oh, he knows Michael Eilig, which you might know from Party Monsters, the, the club kid murderer, you know, who lost his mind on drugs and killed killed their drug dealer. And he did. Know him, yeah, and and again, this means nothing. Like I don't care about Michael Alig. Like, like I just right. knew that, and so it's right. really it's just dumb things like that. I
0: I, I don't know what I believe, and yeah. I'm okay with that.
1: That's great. Yeah, <laughs> that's you. great. Yeah, but I
0: do think that when we are open to these energies, that our intuitions are like much stronger. I think so. Than too. They can be. Yeah, like just like what people are dealing with in front of you. Yeah. Or um, sometimes I'm driving to work for an interview, and I'm like, oh this person's not going to show up. And then they don't.
1: It's like stuff like that, right? And it's like, rarely is it like, I just saw my own death. Like, it's never that, you know? It's never anything that's even remote. I mean, at least that's somewhat helpful. (laughs) (laughs) But
0: but the last time it happened, though, I was telling somebody, remember Air Force One with Harrison Ford? I was like, that was an incredible and, like, fantastical movie. Um, I want to find it. And then that night, I was staying in a hotel for work, and it was on TV.
1: I mean, it's just, like, dumb little things like that happen all the time, you know? And it's, like, I understand why people would make fun of you for, like, making too big a deal of it. But at the same time, to me, it adds this sort of, like, really playful, teasing sense of the unknown that I really enjoy. And I like indulging. I like indulging it with ritual. I feel like there's a part of my brain that gets very stimulated um, when... I do spells that doesn't really get stimulated by other things. Okay. And so I just, I like that. I like just kind of embodying that and owning it. And I, like, I have no interest in getting in a debate with anybody about whether it's real or not. No, I'm not saying you're doing that, but in general, like, I just feel like, yeah, maybe it's not real. Maybe I'm totally deluding myself, but I'm really getting a lot out of it and I'm enjoying myself and I feel like it enriches my life.
0: So what do you mean by ritual though? Like what in your life? Doing
1: spells, you know, I, I like to do spells. Um, I do like, um, Every month there's a full moon, a new moon was a full moon, of course, too. But there's a new moon. I really like new moons because it's about new, fresh beginnings. And I really, I just really jive on that. So I like to do like a special tarot reading. I make a list of intentions, which I learned to do from Darren Stein, who I know is a friend of yours, the yeah. filmmaker. He's a big new moon Person, he used to send out emails about it, and I.
0: He keeps it hidden, but he is
1: actually. Yeah, well, <laughs> he's, he's in the closet about it. Oh no, sorry, <laughs> I, just, I just outed him. <laughs> as a witch, a man witch. Um, but yeah, I've I've really made that a part of my normal of my monthly like life. You know, um, I love that. When I get to work, I like to like light some candles and lay out some crystals and pick a crystal that feels inspiring to me. Wow. Yeah, it's just kind of keeping uh, one eye on like this idea that there's big beautiful vibes out there that are mine for the the connecting to
0: yeah do you do tarot readings oh yeah yeah I've been reading
1: tarot since I was 15 years old wow yeah
0: who gave you your first deck?
1: Um, Danny Frizzy. Hi, Danny, if you're watching. Danny Frizzy was um, my friend in high school. Um, I didn't have a ton of friends in high school, and we were in. We both went to this really crappy vocational high school, and we were in the same shop, and we were both queer, but we didn't know it, or, or maybe he was more... Maybe he... I mean, he was, like, looking at pictures of Axl Rose and crying, so maybe he did know more than I realized, <laughs> but I was pretty clueless that, that I was queer, but... um but yeah, we we really liked each other and we were friends and he used he worked at like a Barnes and Noble and I think he stole a deck for me from work and gave it to me because he knew I was interested in tarot. I
0: love that. Yeah,
1: me too. And you know, you're there's this like there's a lot of like myths around tarot and and superstition around it and one is that you're you should never buy a deck, it should be given to you. Which I don't believe in, but it, it's nice that it was stolen. No one bought it, <laughs> it was given to me. Oh yeah.
0: so. Well, we are out of time, but oh, next no. time I will I'm ask for a tarot reading.
1: Well, I have my tarot book out in June, so maybe I come back and oh, visit. Oh, good. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Um, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. It's so fun. Good. I'm glad. Um, where can everybody find you online if they want to find out more information? Your website, Twitter? Yeah,
1: uh, MichelleT.com is my website. I am on Twitter. I'm at T Michelle. Um, my Facebook profile is startlingly public. And <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I guess that's where you can
0: find me. All right, awesome. And I'm on Twitter, Jeff Masters One. Of course, all of our other interviews are on iTunes and YouTube. If you want to see our faces, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye.